Hi, everybody. We're back after a break to this week in Caribbean art. I am Maria Elena Ortiz, creator and writer. Today, I have the pleasure to be with one of the greatest hosts, Susie Wong. Oh, thank you. Hi, everyone. Suzanne Fredericks here. Susie Wong presents Kingston, Jamaica. And of course, we're missing the hostess with the mostest, Melissa Hunter Davis. She um, uh, is not feeling well today, but she gave us the um, the great task to take you on this podcast about Caribbean art. So, Susie, perhaps we should start talking about uh, what's been going on since we since we last talked, yeah. and and if there's anything on the news right now that's catching our attention. Well, there's, there's quite a lot, you know, we've taken a bit of a break as everybody knows. Um, I, I have to excuse, you know, just excuse myself for my, my congested sound just because I'm recovering from COVID. So just to explain that to everyone, um, there's been a lot happening. I mean, you know, well, I would like to start with your curating around another project. Yes. Maria. Yes. I it's did that. Oh, so you you're throwing it back at me. <laughs> no, no, I have the news, but I, I, you know, I read about it, couldn't really get a good grasp of what it was about. So I want, I made a mental note. I thought I must ask Maria about that. So it's, it's really yeah. interesting, but I'd love to really understand what you were doing and the artist. Yes. You know, it's, it's very interesting because, um, you know, I came back almost nine years ago from to the U.S. after working in Mexico City and started just, you know, continuing on what was happening in Miami and in the Caribbean with a lot of um, art. And it's just been interesting to see and amazing to see that kind of this renaissance, I would say, of contemporary Caribbean art. Mm -hmm. So that being said, um, I was invited to do a new initiative that NADA is doing, the uh, New Dealers Art Association. And they're basically doing a series of online exhibitions called Curated. And I was their first, um, uh, their first curator to do it. And the process is very simple. The gallery sent some, um, uh, some, some options and then I review them and select some other artists. And it's always like, I love doing these things because um, often I get to learn about new artists and it's always very difficult to choose. But also, um, you know, I think a lot about the platform too, like, because it's, it's different when you see an artwork online versus seeing it in person. So, so I selected a couple of artists and it's right now it's up. Uh, interestingly enough, um, there were some artists from the Caribbean in it. We're actually going to be doing, I think that this that this podcast is going to be published hopefully before our talk. So if you're listening, we're going to have a talk this upcoming Tuesday, June 28th, um, and you can join it through the NADA portals. But, um, and there's, I mean, there's a lot of different artists, a lot, some which are actually in also in Canada, um, in Toronto. So in, in, uh, on Tuesday, I'm going to be in conversation with um, Timothy Yanis from uh, Toronto, also Matt Jen Isaac, who's a Haitian-American, and Timothy is um, uh, Jamaican-Canadian, and then also with um, uh, Aton, who is an artist from South Africa. And it's just been really, really neat, and I can, you know, because I'm preparing for this conversation, I can speak more about Timothy's and, and Matt Jen's work, just because it's fresher, although there's a lot of great art on the platform, it's not all Caribbean art, I should mention, so take a look. Uh, but for example, Timothy, he's very interested in notions of um, kind of like this black heritage and ancestry. 
but through a lens of opacity. So he really wants to um, point to histories that uh, we can resonate to, like the work that is in the show is this um, image that is split. You see, it's like an image of a, of a woman and you might not know who the picture, the person is, but it's actually um, Miriam Makeba, the great South African apartheid um, uh, singer and also apartheid activist. And so there's a certain degree of, of um, yeah, opacity, like lack of transparency to assert his own world. And then imagine Isaac, she's a very interesting artist based in Brooklyn. And she also deals with ideas of kind of, um, uh, kind of her own community and her own um, reality, kind of creating this um, utopic, she describes it as utopic and magical realism paintings, in which at first glance, it does feel like a typical uh, representational figurative painting. However, when you look closer, you're gonna see certain things that are not, um, uh, are not normal. So for example, there's this, uh, in the painting that is on a part of the exhibition, there is a, um, a girl who is actually her and a younger self uh, harvesting okra, which for her has a lot of sentiment, you know, as a, as a, as a crop that, you know, in the Caribbean, through, mm -hmm. through Africa, it's in a lot of our dishes, and they're actually growing out of little galaxies. And then in the background, you see this gigantic um, carrots that are being harvested as well. So it's, there's a lot of optimism in the work, yet kind of pointing to um, ideas of uh, nostalgia, diaspora and community, which I find very um, refreshing. Yeah. And, you know, I was talking to her yesterday and I thought it was kind of neat that even her color, even though she's based in Brooklyn and her immediate reality is New York, um, her palette does resonate to me with a lot of like Haitian masters. Mm, interesting, thank you. <clears throat> things on the radar this week outside of that um we have quite a lot so we have document 15 have you been following that mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so we have a lot of controversy well apparently so you can shed more light on that i think i i mean i, I i'm following alice yard uh from trinidad who are um have a whole program there for the for the duration of the exhibition and the ghetto biennale you know, so there are various people from the region working in various ways with these two particularly particular community entities. But, you know, what are the controversies and tell us a bit more about them, isn't it? There's something around anti-Semitism or something. There's like that. something. I mean, I don't I don't know all the details, I have to admit, but there's something around. Yeah. Um, um, anti-Semitism. And, and so on. Um, and I, I think, think, I think it's really just Palestinian voices speaking, isn't it? <laughs> That's what wow. I remember wow. that was my impression. Oh it's, my God. Okay. It's all about perspective. Well, then let's get back to the art that we yeah. came here to talk about. <laughs> yeah. Sure. Um, uh, yeah. I, you know, I was talking to Anika Russell, who I think she's also participating um, uh, and is doing a work for, for the, for the, for the show. So that's that. So it's really exciting. Um, all these artists that are producing work. And also, I guess the Jamaica Biennial is opening. The Kingston Biennial is opening this weekend, yes. Yeah. In Kingston, Jamaica, everybody. Um, you can follow National Gallery of Jamaica to, to learn more about that. Yes, the lead curator is coming in, David Scott, um, of the Small Axe Project and University of Columbia. Um, 
So it's all, you know how it is as it comes to the to the um, opening day, everything's under pressure, but we've moved from like, you know, stressing into excitement. So watching the team and how everything's going, it's it's exciting. The catalog's in, it looks great. So, you know, it's, it's going to be exciting. The opening's this weekend. There's a symposium on Monday morning. Um, <clears throat> Monday, the 27th. Okay. With the artists that are in, uh, David Scott will lead one and O'Neill Lawrence, Chief Curator of National Gallery, will lead the second. And it's really a, a kind of artist roundtable um, speaking about the thematics of the exhibition, the various lenses through which artists think about that in their work or the how um, the work's been produced um, and curated through this particular lens of the idea of pressure and the Creole idioms that that kind of translates into and ripples out to, <coughs> which is quite multidisciplinary. Um, and that will be housed on uh, YouTube. And it, it's going to be live streamed, but in case you miss it when you're listening to this, it will be on the National Gallery to make a YouTube page and IGTV. Um, so, yeah, that's going to be exciting. Yes, 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 yes. What's also exciting, uh, Leisha Johnson opens his solo show tomorrow night with Turn Gallery in the Bahamas. Oh, that's looking pretty amazing. And I know they're excited about that. In Jamaica, we also have um, the iconic film, The Harder They Come, which I'm sure everyone yes. knows. Not. I screened it once at Pam, and I remember that as soon as it hit play, the entire audience started, like, vibing with their head. I thought, like, okay, this is, <laughs> this is cool. Yeah, and the soundtrack lives on, you know, and yeah. so much about the story. Um, and the family of Perry Hensel, the director, um, it's the 50 year anniversary of the film. So they have a location here that's uh, also, you know, quite an iconic building, 10A East Kings House Road. And um, Justine Hensel, his daughter, has put together a really beautiful exhibition. Uh, she commissioned about, I think it's about 30 artists. I could oh, be wrong, wow. less. Yeah. Um, and the likes of Jasmine Thomas Gravan, um, Kimani Beckford, a whole host of contemporary um, artists in Jamaica and multimedia, you know, so we have the digital, the video. It's really interesting. And um, so there's an exhibition there. She's she's kind of curated it herself. And there's a utilization of poetry within that because Justine runs Calabash. She's one mm -hmm. of the, the literary festival Calabash. So she's a great lover of words, too. And there was this great live show. I mean, I was away at the time and I missed the event, but I saw a lot of it online. <clears throat> and so that exhibition is on and um, really good. Um, something else I think was really important to talk about is there's, um, I wanted to mention also Andil Gussin's, um Yes. Exhibition at the Ford Foundation Gallery. Yes. In New York. I mean, that looks incredible. I would love to see that. And we've that been in communication. Yeah. So you've been in communication, so you have the download. So anything you can share with us? Um, well, I just know, I mean, the response has been incredible for him. Um, well, for the show and the artist, but, you know, obviously I hear it through Andil. Um, and he's a very interesting curator as well and thinker and writer. He's worked with Wendy Nanan before at the Museum of the Organization States of America States in D.C., I think, and did a show there during the pandemic, which I thought was very brave. But this show features, um, it's called Everything 
<clears throat> slackens in a wreck. And it's really about the more indentured history and the stories around that um, from the Caribbean. So we have Margaret Chen, who's a Chinese Jamaican artist, um, Wendy Nanan, who's Indo-Trinidadian, um, Kelly Sinopa Mary, who's from the French Caribbean, and um, yeah, from Guadeloupe. Right. So she's Indo-Caribbean. And then Andrea Chung, who has um who's who's mixed all around um from indentured um ancestry. So I mean, I haven't seen the work myself, but they're all artists I really, really love. I mean, yes, yeah. They're all yeah. women. So there's this kind of there's this tenderness to the stories and the work and this this detail that's just so exquisite. And the mediums are so different. So when you look at like the sculpture work of Wendy and Margaret, I mean, very different materials, very different kinds of ideas, but the work itself is just, I don't know, I just feel like it's a really soft entry into a really difficult story. Yeah. Yeah. And Andrea's work, she did this beautiful installation of like baskets that she wove that kind of hang from a ceiling. Um, I can't remember the title of the work, but really beautiful. I believe a museum has acquired that work. Mm. <clears throat> and of course Kelly yeah so, yeah so if anyone in New York I would urge you to go and see that um exhibition because so many of us want to and can't get there <laughs> yes and I mean and, I mean no that exhibition looks beautiful and the Ford Foundation is also such a great space and the artist list is solid um I yeah. do want to say though that uh just to give a shout out recently I when I was in New York for freeze during our break and I saw this the a, a great show by Alberto Whittle um, oh, yeah, at Nicola Basso. Yeah. And that was like, you know, coming from seeing her work at the Venice Biennale as part of the Scotland Pavilion mm -hmm. to then seeing this other work in um, New York felt like such a treat to, to really, you know, yeah. So I think the show is almost over, but um, totally worth um, time. If it's still yeah. open by the time you listen to this podcast. Yeah. I'd love to see that show. I've been um, getting the emails and seeing some of the work. And not having been to either Venice or this show, you know, it's just, uh, it's really just online consumption. <laughs> yeah. <me>. That's, <laughs> a lot of us do that, you know. Yeah. It's the nature of the game these days. Um, anything else in the news? There is... um. There's an exhibition um, by, it's an interesting idea conceptually. There's two galleries having a, an exhibition simultaneously. Um, I haven't seen much about it online in terms of the visuals, um, but it's called Print London. So we okay. have, yeah, and it's um, in two places. So it's Barbados and London, and the Bayesian is the Brighton Storeroom in Barbados is the gallery. And I do believe, Jocelyn Gardner is in the exhibition. It's an exhibition of prints by um, Caribbean printmakers that will be in London, Ontario, and St. George and Barbados from the 15th of June to the 2nd of July. So it's only two weeks. Um, apparently it does have a fabulous catalogue. Too many artists for me to list, but you know, there's Versia Harris, Mark King, Jocelyn Gardner, um, Eric Mummery. I mean, they're all Bayesian artists and it would be a good place to like check out if you're interested in artists from that particular island um, for our listeners. And where is the show at? 
Um, it is in Brighton Storeroom in Barbados and the Satellite Project Space in London. Okay. Also, that's nice because you can really um, uh, go to, if you're in London, you can go to one in London. And if you're in Barbados, you can go to one Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, I think it's quite a nice attempt to kind of create something that has some cohesion together in two spaces that give different access points in either one. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, there's so much going on and we're just kind of, this is just like the, the stuff that's like in front of us because I'm sure we're missing a lot. <clears throat> well, I, I didn't want to, I mean, I was thinking about it before we came on to record this, but I just didn't, you know, it was a bit overwhelming to do everything. So I thought, well, I'll leave a couple for next week. Yeah. Yeah. No, we can deep dive. Yeah. Next <laughs> hey, it's your truly DJ Bulletproof of iHeartRadio, and I'm sitting down with Virginia King, Program Administrator for Florida A&M University's Medical Marijuana Education and Research Initiative, a.k.a. Marion. This is a Mary's moment. Can you grow your own marijuana in Florida if you have a medical marijuana card? The answer actually is no, you can't. Florida law only allows licensed medical marijuana treatment centers to grow, process, and dispense marijuana. The department will refer any business or person suspected of violating state law to local law enforcement for investigation. It is important to remember that marijuana is still illegal under federal law. Once again, is your truly DJ Bulletproof of iHeartRadio sitting down with Virginia King of Florida A&M University's Medical Marijuana Education and Research Initiative, a.k.a. Mary. Educate, learn, talk with Mary at mmeri.famu.edu. And right now we have some great people that are joining us this um, uh, this morning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're really honored to have um, Catherine Pill from the Museum of Fine Arts in uh, St. Petersburg, Florida. And our rock star from the Bahamas, Gia Swaby. Um, who well, we haven't actually met yet, but you know we know all about her trajectory and her work and this this really wonderful show that's happening in Florida. So, yep, they're coming in to talk to us about it. So, welcome to you both. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thank you. Great to see you. I'm I mean, going to give it. Sorry, Maria. Oh, no, I just want to say congratulations. Uh, congratulations on the show. But back to you, Susie. <laughs> I'm going to do a little intro for our listeners on each of um, both Gio and Catherine. And then we'll just, you know, we'll have a chat about the exhibition and Gio's work and Catherine's role. Um, So Gio, Gio was born in 1991 in the Bahamas. Gio is a Caribbean girl. Uh, She studied in the Bahamas, an associate of arts degree um, in the fine arts at the University of Bahamas and then studied in Vancouver at the Emily Carr University of Art and Design and has recently graduated from her MFA in Ontario, from the Ontario College of Art and Design um, in Toronto. And that's where she's currently living. Um, Gio's practice, we're gonna go into with her directly so you guys can hear um, from her about the work itself, which is so uh, so beautiful and refreshing. And, um, and we're really looking forward to that. So um, Catherine Pill, Catherine is also a young curator. Um, I love all these young people coming into the art world and really doing their thing. She's currently the, well, she's the first curator of 
Contemporary Art at the Museum of Fine Arts in St. Petersburg, Florida, which I think is very interesting considering the new kind of trajectories museums are considering. She has a dual MA in Art History, Theory and Criticism and Arts Administration and Policy from the School of Art at the Institute of Chicago. Um, she has worked at the Kemper Museum of Contemporary Art in Kansas and also was a co-director of the Concertina Gallery in Chicago for almost a year. Uh, I believe, Catherine, and correct me if I'm wrong, that you've been at St. Petersburg. Um, you've been at the Museum of Fine Arts for a few years now. Uh, is it like seven or eight years? Well, it's actually since 2013. We're, we're coming up on 10 years, actually. <laughs> oh, wow. Oh. Okay. Yeah. All right. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so welcome to you both. Yeah, Thank welcome. You. Thank you. I would like to ask you a question because I remember the first time I saw Gio's work, it was actually at the National Gallery of the Bahamas when they saw the show on contemporary art and Holly Bino. Yeah, you were part of the show that uh, the National Gallery of the Bahamas, they do a show um, on basically kind of contemporary art from the Bahamas, kind of like almost like a biennial type of, of model. Mm -hmm. And the first time I saw your work was when you were, you did it with Michael Edwards and Holly Bynum curated the show. So I was interested. And I remember that moment of when I was introduced to your work at that moment. Uh, I was wondering, Catherine, how did you find out of Geo's work? Uh, that was a good day. <laughs> that was, uh, <laughs> you know, I really started with our director, Kristen Shepard, who was in conversations with Claire Oliver. Um, Kristen spends a lot of time in New York. She went to see Geo's work. Um, uh, up in Harlem. And then I was able to go out and see the works before they were even on the walls. This was Gio's first solo show with Claire. Um, and really, once you see that the work in person, um, before you even begin to understand the complexities of what Gio's doing with thread and fabric, uh, we were we were sold and we just we we told Claire we would love to be a part of um, Gio's career. Well, what I think is really interesting, Catherine, is um, <clears throat> the partnership with yourself and Melissa, curator in Chicago, and the and the whole notion, like you've already planned the traveling around this exhibition. Um, mm -hmm. And normally that kind of thing is, is, unless it's like some huge historical survey, you know, that tends not to be on the cards in the beginning. Um, so just wondering how that came to be and, um, and working with Melissa around Gio's work. Uh, Melinda. Melinda Watt is the chair of the textiles department at the Art Institute of Chicago. And she, uh, she also, we had sort of um, expressed very early interest in showing Gio's work. And uh, we met with um, Melinda and a few other curators at the gallery, looking at the work all together. And, you know, got a phone call from Melinda saying that the Art Institute of Chicago really wanted to do this show and we ended up co-organizing it. And so I think it's really uh, been beneficial. Obviously it's been beneficial for all. Geo's work gets seen by more people in more places. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we have a catalog. I'm sort of putting Geo in the context of black, contemporary black portraiture. Uh, Melinda is really coming at it from a textile expert perspective, as well as thinking about um, feminist histories of textiles. Uh, right. And then we also have a third venue. So Geo's work is going to be seen across the country. It's going to tour to the Peabody Essex Museum in 2023. 
That's awesome. Just out okay. of curiosity, um, and the catalog sounds wonderful. So I can't wait to get a copy. I was just wondering if there's anybody contributing to provide like the Caribbean perspective of the work? There's not the Caribbean, well, sorry, what am I saying? Geo. <laughs> Geo uh, contributes intros. <laughs> yes, uh, so I wrote, um, I wrote a lot. I'm, I wrote intros for every series for the book. So there's a lot of my voice and writing in the work. And um, as, as you probably know, from looking a little bit into my practice that uh, my culture and heritage, like being from the Bahamas is such a strong part of the, the kind of visual language of my work, as well as in the written word, um, the titling of my work, the way I talk about it. Uh, so much of, of it is um, influenced and inspired um, by Bahamian people and culture. That sounds really beautiful. It does. I guess, oh, go ahead, Susie. I wanted to ask Gia something about her process, because I mean, um, of course, I saw the work. It's very dynamic and it really drew me in very, you know, viscerally. Um, at the, in the very beginning, when uh, Claire's probably your first sort of show with Claire. Um, I wanted to ask you about your process. <clears throat> I mean, I love the Caribbean elements. And, you know, in the Caribbean, we have a long history of textile works and um, and the kind of domesticity around that, the womanhood, the sense of sisterhood that builds around making. And um, it's just so intimate and you bring it out in a, such a such a beautiful way. Um, and I wondered that with the, in terms of the, the portraiture element of your work and working with the subjects that you do, how the relationships um, are formed, developed, how you kind of create this sense of ease in it all. You know, when the figures stand there, obviously it, there's a real comfort there. Um, and so I just wondered about those relationships, how you work with your subjects, um, are they people that are already in your family and friends? Are they kind of different people, et cetera, that kind of thing? Mm -hmm. uh, well, thank you so much. I appreciate the kind words. Uh, oh, most of the people that I'm representing are people that I know really well, personally, a lot of family and friends. Um, I am still pretty, uh, you know, young in my career. And this practice for me is like, and exploration of love in as much as it's a part of my life and a part of my art practice, figuring out, you know, new kind of pathways to express and unlock love. Um, so immediately and very naturally, I gravitated toward representing the people that are closest to me. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's where that ease kind of comes in and you get a sense of it because um, we know each other really well and then the photography process when that happens uh, it's just it's normally just the two of us or if there are other people it's other friends uh, so there is like an easiness to it uh, it's very very I'm not I'm not a professional photographer so it's very very low-key um, and I think it feels approachable in that way for both of us. Mm -hmm. um, we go through the session and sometimes, you know, people in the first few shots, I may get 
the one that's going to be for uh, that I'll use for the reference photos. And some people it's toward the end, but there's like always um, a kind of a shift in the person when I am photographing them. And I feel the shift in myself too, when I do self-portraiture of um, really stepping into a place of, of kind of, of confidence, uh, but it's, it's, easy and it's relaxed and that's the moment I really want to capture thank you Maria you wanted to ask something yeah I wanted to ask about um well I have two questions one might be <laughs> you can, like I was wondering going back to when you when they first visited your studio I imagine it was a couple of years ago to where you are now and now the results of the of the exhibition. If you can take us through there, because there's so much as curators, we see so much um, uh, about like how an artist grows and continues to develop their practice. So I was wondering from your eyes, like if you can walk us visually to to that process. Uh, so my, my work, so much has changed in like this last year and a half about my work and um, practice the way that I am able to approach my work with new uh, resources and new kind of um, backing behind me. Uh, I think my first, the, the first show that uh, you might have seen or, 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 or not heard of um, would have been that I feel like is a part of this current journey would have been the solo show at Claire Oliver. Um, even at that time, my studio space was so small. I was like, I have a gigantic sewing machine. It's like with the flaps open at six feet. And that's all like a fit in there. It's like once I was open, nobody else could walk into the room because it was just so such a tight space. Mm -hmm. um, so my space dictated a lot of what I could make. I feel like part of Caribbean culture, uh, being a Bahamian person is adaptability. You learn to work with what you have and what's around you. Mm -hmm. Now that's what I grew up learning anyway. I don't, I, I feel like um, talking to other people that that feels like a universal experience for Caribbean people, um, very resourceful. And um, I was working on a much smaller sewing machine as well. So um, my practice has uh, shifted a lot in the sense that I just have more time and space to focus on the work. <laughs> Um, now that I can consider myself a full-time artist for the first time in my life, which is incredible. Yes, yes, exactly. We love that for me. Absolutely. <laughs> um, I'm able to spend more time with this relationship building, this initial process of connecting with the person. I can spend more time with my work, just looking at it sometimes. I have space to actually hang it and see it. And I think all of that has been reflected in these new works and how they've kind of um, how they've kind of come about. I wanted That's... to ask in context to that. Um, the, your trajectory has been so kind of like so interesting and so immediate. So while you're still in, in doing your MFA, you know, there's a connection with the commercial space, Claire Oliver, who and she's a she's a dynamo. Um, especially around textiles and portraiture and and working with artists of um <clears throat> of color. Um, 
I, I mean, just for our listeners, and we have like a lot of young people that listen to the podcast and stuff, and your success is a really interesting um, journey. So as a, is there something that you would, well, if you could kind of maybe speak to what's been the most challenging thing you've had to kind of deal with in that, because with just thinking about the confines of space and having to produce works of a particular scale in a particular space and wanting to be more ambitious, maybe. Um, and maybe the most rewarding thing that has come from it, because people will make assumptions about what that might be for you. So um, if you could speak to that, that would be great. Uh, well, some of the challenges that I have um, faced, a lot of it has come from um, when I think about, my, well, my life and art are so connected. So when I face challenges in my life, it kind of comes over into my practice as well. Um, I think recently losing my parents has been the most challenging experience in approaching my artwork um, because I uh, think of them, you know, being able to experience this with me with me. And I don't um, I don't have that in the physical sense. I feel them here with me, uh, especially my mom, because she was a seamstress. And when I sew, I feel connected to her. Um, so that's a difficulty. And then when I think about art and, and art making and that world specifically, I think one of the greatest challenges uh, prior to this was just prior to having the space and time to work full time and um, getting this new attention was just resource based. Um, you know, I was working a regular job, I just had a a non-art related job um so being able to try to facilitate time in my life to think about art and make art was uh was hard but the thing that's become difficult now I have that time and that space but um before it was just me and my like core group uh really who I was getting a lot of feedback on my work from now it's a lot a much larger audience than that and there I you have to there's a difficulty in finding an honesty and authenticity in your practice am I making the work that I feel is uh true to me and to the people that I'm representing or is it what people have responded to best um so I just try to think about in my mind, who am I making this work for? It's for me mm -hmm. and um, for primarily uh, Black people. I think about my audience and I try to be true and honest to that rather than what people have responded to best because you will never make the next best thing if you focus on that really. Right. Um, I think that's been the, the hardest part. Rewarding part, easily most rewarding part is the opportunity to connect with more people, um, being able to connect with uh, incredible Black women everywhere and having them and seeing them see my work and see themselves in my work has just been the most rewarding like experience that I could ever imagine with, with the flip side of having that bigger audience and more kind of feedback, there's always this opportunity to connect and to, to reach out. And that's been the, just the most wonderful, beautiful experience for me. Well, I'm sorry about your loss. Um, um, I, my dad had a stroke two years ago, so I can totally feel, um, uh, you know, I, I feel, I, yeah. and I'm sure our listeners also feel so I'm sorry about that. 
Uh, that being said, I was also very um, captivated by something that you said about just having the time to work on your work because there's so much privilege that that like the fact that that you can do that and that others listening are also striving to do that. So it's like also you can get there, you can get there, and you will get there. Um, I was also wanted to ask you a question about just that, like working with textiles, like something that um, I think about a lot, even when I see the work of Lisa Butler or your work is that so much women, like that was, that was what you were supposed to do. You know, a lot of us, everybody actually in this, in this podcast right now, if we were born in a particular moment, even today in a particular context, we would just be relegated to work at home with, you know, at times like sewing for the family and so on. Um, but now you, you kind of hone into that practice and then make it your own. So I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more about that. Um, I mean, uh, whenever, like you said, uh, whenever there is this work with textiles, especially in the context that I worked with it, which combines a lot of different techniques that draw from quilting, from embroidery practice, there's such a strong connection to um, like womanhood and this practice of domesticity um, and the you know, the historical placements of textile and uh, of textiles and what that work has, has been and meant for us. Um, and uh, there's certainly like a, a shift in the way that um, a lot of textile artists now are approaching it. Uh, and I think for me, I do want to maintain this connection to this, uh, this, uh, this history as well of, you know, this work that's considered to be a historically women's work. I want to be able to kind of uh, celebrate that connection and to, uh, you know, honor those women whose practices I'm drawing upon to have the knowledge that I have now. I feel like those communities are so open to sharing um, their communities based in care and love and I, that's, I draw upon that a lot for how I approach my work and practice, especially since it's so much, um, there's so much involvement of other, other people and um, there's this responsibility of representing other people. Thank you. Um, I wanted to ask, uh, Catherine, if you could, um, just for our listeners, go through the dates of the show will be up at um, Museum of Fine Arts and the traveling process. And then I wanted to ask you kind of an independent question about your curatorial work, if, if that's okay. Sure. The exhibition is open through October 9th at the Museum of Fine Arts. Geo is going to be back at the end of July for some public programs, including a fresh up dance party. Oh, nice. Uh, yes. <laughs> you know how to get done, Geo. Geo's got to go. <laughs> um, everyone's invited. And then uh, it'll open in uh winter of 2023 at the Art Institute. It'll be posted on their website soon. Geo has approved to all the text. And then uh, it'll open um, in the fall, late summer fall in Peabody Essex Museum in Salem, Massachusetts. So it'll have, um, it's gonna have a different feel at every one of these institutions. And I'm excited to see these new iterations of how Geo's work is gonna be presented. And mm -hmm. Geo, you know, is a highly collaborative partner and artist. And so, no, I'm just so excited to see the new iterations of the show. 
Yeah, it'll be interesting. Well, the catalogue looks incredible with the essays and so much by Geo as well. Can you tell people where they can find the catalogue online if they want to order it and or can't get to the exhibition for some reason? Yep, you can. Um, it's published by Rizzoli Electa. You can purchase it at the MFA store. Um, we have an online store. You can also, um, it's also at local retailers. Um, we have some great independent bookstores in St. Pete, for instance. So always check with your independent bookstores. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and then I just want to mention that in addition to Geo's, um, you know, personal introductions to each series, there's also, you know, a pretty personal um, interview between Geo and Nicole Hannah-Jones that really talks mm-hmm. about their trajectory. And um, Geo's intros are really a part of the exhibition. We've included those introductions in the wall vinyl so that Geo's voice is really um it's it's a part of the exhibition audio files you know i was recently at the art institute and i saw ishan adam's show and the 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 didactics also had that um uh, kind of personal note aspect to it aside from the personal voice like what else do you think it adds in terms of accessibility for audience members that type of approach in the exhibition uh just that it offers accessibility because uh, Gio's voice. So when I started at the MFA as the first curator of contemporary art, one of the best ways to get audiences engaged is to hear directly from the artist. So whenever that's possible, that's something um, I certainly would want to promote. Uh, I mean, some of the major curatorial choices were about how do we present Geo's work in this, in a pretty small span of time, how do we show the developments that have happened? Like for instance, unstretched, distretched works. Um, Geo works in series form. So we were able to keep a lot of these series together and make connections in various ways. Uh, But I think increasingly just curating is, it's always collaborative, but I think there's um, definitely a tendency to increase voices that are being heard or read within didactics. So um, the exhibition includes new works and also older work. And you like, um, what's the span of the show? 2017 through 2021. Oh, nice. That's a nice kind of glimpse into, 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 into the artist. That's neat. And, and a pandemic in there in the mix. So <laughs> that must have been also kind of, kind of interesting and, and dynamic. Yeah, there's one work, Geo, that was done with a remote photo shoot. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah. Can you tell us about that one? Yes. Um, so I had to, it was during the pandemic times, a lot changed about my, um, I'm sure like every artist had to face something similar where I was so accustomed to being able to meet with people in person and photograph and talk with them and share the space with them. And, uh, that shifted and I was like, I, I shifted a lot to working in self-portraiture. Um, but then I made, uh, this, uh, piece called, uh, Gallivanting, which was really focused on, uh, my experience during the pandemic. It's the largest work that I've made to date, a, a triptych, um, which combines three separate panels and three, uh, portraits. Uh, one of them I had photographed myself. A, a while before that but the other two were photographed remotely and then I combined them all to kind of have this feeling of uh, connection 
to be able to like, um, uh, I don't know if any, if, if your parents ever like told you to stay home and stop going out, trying to gallivant everywhere, but. Uh, oh yeah, that happened, especially when reggaeton started in Puerto Rico. They were like, you could not go out. This is not that Yankee. He's not going anywhere. He's not going anywhere, even though we escaped to, to go see his shows. Exactly. Uh, so the pandemic felt like that, like stay home. And this work was like me being able to still like make this connection and share the space with people and, um, you know, imagine what it might be like to connect again. Uh, so I explored that through this work. And um, uh, I just I wanted to say about the series intros, how great it was working with um, Catherine and the MFA. Uh, they were just, uh, it was such a wonderful first experience working with the museum for me because they were just so uh, accommodating with uh, every uh, kind of request or uh, even coming up with incredible ideas to share more of my voice. I indicated like the importance of being able to speak about my own work. And um, Catherine, I feel like really was a champion for that and um, really uh, brought that forward and through the exhibition for the full time of the planning for the book, as well as in um, this iteration of seeing the work. And so that's just been, it's been such a gift, honestly, to work with a, a beautiful team. Back at you, Gio. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's fantastic to hear, you know, because how artists and museums liaise and, and work together. Um, I've, I've heard some nightmare stories over the years. And I do think um, in this kind of new age, post-pandemic, maybe with new generations in the mix, I think the energy of that will become infinitely more, um, more collaborative and interesting, you know. Uh, I think we should wrap there, Maria. What do you think? Any more yeah. questions? I mean, it's such a, I think there's a great, like to finish on a positive note, right? Um, uh, it's just congratulations to you both. And I also, I just want to also commend that, um, you know, these three institutions not only, you know, in St. Pete, but also in Chicago. And then when it goes to this other museum in Massachusetts, like the support that they're giving to, to emerging artists, which is, you know, um, uh, I don't know if you saw that article a couple of weeks ago that museum collections are mostly representative of 1% of the artists of this major galleries. Like the fact that, um, uh, you know, that effort and that um, dedication and passion, um, I think it's, we need more of that. So that's really cool. And I'm not even thinking how I can get to see the show in St. Pete. So if I make it over there, I'll make sure to to let you know, Catherine. And please, please do, yes. Yeah. So I guess that before we leave, maybe we want to say where we can follow you. Yeah. Uh, you can follow me on Instagram. <laughs> There's my name, Gio Swaby. Um, I have a website and then also my uh, gallery representation, Claire Oliver Gallery uh, posts uh, so much on their website about articles and um, new works and new exhibitions. Uh, so those are three spaces people can check out. And for updates on the show, um, the mfasaintpete.org website and on Instagram, mfasaintpete. 
Thank you so much. Thanks for being here and sharing so much of both your practice and the work and the exhibition. Um, have a wonderful day. Thank you. It was such a wonderful experience. Thank you. No, thank you. Thank and you. before we go, we should also let our listeners know where we you can follow us, right? You can follow me also on the gram at Contemporary Chica. Yes, and, and you can follow me at, at Susie Wong Presents. And please do not uh, forget to follow Sugarcane Magazine at their Instagram. And also, uh, if you like the content, subscribe. If you like it, just hit that like button. Uh, it just supports us and also other podcasts that have similar content. Thank you. And I guess bye. Bye. Bye, everybody. Bye. Take care.